Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as it genuinely really does help others to find the podcast, which is always good. And most importantly, don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast as we all know Good old word of mouth is the best way of spreading the word. This is a delicious episode with the very impressive Tommy Banks. What a story. Lots of ups and downs and I think some really good life lessons in there for everyone too. Hope you enjoy listening and I will see you on the other side. My guest today is Tommy Banks. Tommy is a Michelin-starred chef and great British menu champion. He is the head chef at his family restaurant, The Black Swan, in Oldstead, North Yorkshire. He started cooking at the age of 17, and at just 24, he became the youngest chef in Britain at the time to win a Michelin star. Last year, Tommy's restaurant, The Black Swan, was voted number one restaurant in the world by TripAdvisor Traveller's Choice Awards, the first time since the award launch that a UK restaurant has won. Tommy has just released his first cookbook entitled Roots, which is, they say, perfect for foodies, foragers and cookbook collectors. Welcome, Tommy. So nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me. So I feel like you've got all the bases covered there. Basically, this is a book for everyone. Yeah, I think so. It's not an out-and-out restaurant cookbook. I know there is recipes from the restaurant in it, but I I wanted everybody to be able to, to cook from it. And there's a lot of preserving recipes and things like that. And th- those things are, are really quite simple. And hopefully people buy into that because what's better than having a kitchen full of kilner jars with things bubbling away? And that sounds quite fun. Yeah, I love a kilner jar. I <laughs> hadn't come across the term cookbook collector, but I feel like that defines me as a person. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a lot of them. I should read some of them as yeah. well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're nice to look at though, aren't they? Whether you read them or not. Now, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I feel like your story has the makings of a Hollywood film. You've got the new family business ripe with risk and excitement. The young, party-loving boy who doesn't want to settle down. Then illness strikes. Lots of operations follow and months of convalescence. And you turn your life around. You develop a passion for cooking. You turn out to be remarkable at it. And then the icing on the top is that you go and earn yourself a Michelin star, making you the youngest Michelin-starred chef at the time. But that's not the end of the journey. In many ways, it was only the beginning. What do you think? It sounds great when you say that. It's not quite how I how I remember. It sounds a lot more glamorous than than reality was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who do you think yeah. would play you in the movie? Sounds great. Um, well, it's, yeah, I'd like somebody. Uh, who would, who would flatter flatter me? So people, you know, if it was, uh, especially if it was like after I died or something, oh, right, you know, people yeah. would be like, "Oh, he was a good-looking guy, wasn't he?" <laughs> so like Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy would be brilliant. Yeah. yeah, he'd have to work on having a little bit of a more northern accent. Oh, I think he's capable of that. I think he is. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I can't be. I can't be a Cockney geezer. Yeah, <laughs> no, that wouldn't work. <laughs> okay, so on to more important things. You are a farmer's son. You grew up eating off the land, and so let's talk about your first desert island dish. That is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. It's a dish that most reminds me of my childhood. So my grandparents live next door with a little farm, and there's like our house, and then my grandparents next door. And on a Sunday, when they'd invite us around for Sunday lunch, I remember in summertime, they always used to, my grandfather would grow all his own vegetables. So potatoes, I remember new potatoes, incredibly sweet. And, and when they're 
that fresh the the skins just fall off them when you cook when you wash them so they you know they were like they were kind of like skinned but what he used to do is he would cook them in a pressure cooker with mint oh right and he had this massive apple mint bush outside of the house and i'd go out and pick this apple mint for him and he put it in the pressure cooker and well it's probably pretty basic thing steamed potatoes really with mint and then we'd have this sort of like lamb casserole but i just remember those potatoes and mint so fondly and and actually the very specific mint being apple mint. And, yeah. I mean, I had no idea it was apple mint no. at the time. I feel so ignorant. I haven't come across apple mint. Well, there's lots of different types of, okay. of, of mint other than like peppermint and spearmint, which come yeah. across all the time. I had no real idea at the time, I suppose. But since then, like, I love doing lamb and mint. And my, my chefs get so annoyed because every year when it gets summertime, like, I think I want to do lamb and mint again this year. <laughs> and they're like, really? But it's a classic. <laughs> but I love new potatoes, lamb and mint. And I think that just goes back to this nostalgic thing. And I always use apple mint on my yeah. dish as well. That sounds like a killer combo. So as you say, you grew up on a farm with an abundance of local produce. Was that something that you appreciated at the time, sort of how lucky that was to sort of have that relationship with the land and with the food that you were eating. I think I had no idea. Yeah. I think I had absolutely no idea. And and, and of course you wouldn't because you're, you're a kid and you want to run around and have a great time. Yeah. I, love, I love playing sport and, you know, just adventuring <laughs> and being generally naughty. But then once I found myself in a situation where I was looking to get ideas from a culinary perspective, all you can do is call upon your experiences. And as a boy who'd never left home and cooking in the same village in the same place there wasn't that much to call upon so then you actually suddenly realized wow i've been entrenched in in culinary things from day one with farming it's you're so close to nature but also this sort of quite old-fashioned upbringing i had and like my my grandma was in the wi and would do be baking all the time and all these sort of things and you suddenly realize it's really cool this yeah (laughs) really really useful (laughs) it's so funny isn't it that you sort of only appreciate that kind of Mm. stuff when you look backwards you never appreciate it at the time no, but you're in the moment, aren't you? Yeah. But no, you really do. And you kind of long for those days. There's a, there's a recipe in the book for an apple cake, which was an apple cake my grandma would make. And like, I just love this cake so much. I make it every year. And so we have this particular apple tree on our farm, or Keswick apples are called. They're not very nice for eating, but they are quite good for cooking with. And my grandma would always make this apple cake every year. And then my grandfather's birthday in September and he would be out working the fields oh. and she would arrange like an afternoon tea. So we'd oh. all have to, and he would always not arrive to it because oh. he'd be too busy grafting. <laughs> so I remember like she'd have this cake and I always had like flaked almonds on top and she'd make tea and we'd all be there and he'd be like up the field in the tractor <laughs> and I'd be deployed off to run up the field and like get him and he'd be like, oh yeah, it's one more time round. And like, no, you just come now. Yeah. And I just remember that apple cake so fondly and I rediscovered the recipe a couple of years ago and now I make that like all the time in oh. autumn. That so, sounds amazing. Yeah. You're like, come now, Grandpa, otherwise there won't be any cake left. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wouldn't have messed with it. <laughs> the second desert island dish, I'm excited because you say yourself that you had no real interest in food when you were growing up. No. So let's talk about the first dish that you learned to cook. Yeah, I, I was a really fussy eater as a kid. Oh, really? Like, I had a packed lunch for school every day, which was cheese sandwiches. And that was it. So I was, I was incredibly fussy. Um, the first dishes I learned to cook, when I first went into the kitchen, I did desserts, actually. Oh, did you? Um, so I remember like making custards and things like that. And I mean, I would always walk away from it and scramble it. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> so that was like, and I, was, I couldn't understand why. I remember one day the chef I was working with, I scrambled it and he, he took it and poured it all over the <gasps> stove and it burned everywhere. And I was like, what? Why have you done that? And he went, well, it's going to take you so long to scrub that off now that you'll never not do it again. <gasps> oh, my goodness. That is so mean. It's awful, isn't it? And I would never, ever do that to anybody. It's such an awful thing to do. And in fairness to him, 
it worked and yeah. I never did it again. <laughs> However, it's just not very nice, is it? No. So I think like the first thing I was making was like creme brulees and custards and things like that. Yeah, that's a very good, very good answer. <laughs> so growing up, the Black Swan was a fairly unsuccessful pub next to your parents' farm. And it was in 2006 that your parents decided to buy it. And the idea was that you'd run it as a family business. Like that's a huge undertaking. Were you to have a specific role in that? Mm. Yeah, I, I don't understand why we ever did that. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, a really naive thing to do. My mum and dad had run a bed and breakfast for 10 years and they were like, it was a great bed and breakfast. It was really sort of twee and there's like three little bedrooms in the farmhouse. And every morning when I go to school, they'd be cooking breakfast service, well, service for yeah. six people <laughs> and uh, out of our family kitchen. And me and my brother would have to like skirt around and grab some toast and go to school. And my, my dad would would cook the eggs and my mum would cook everything else we had our own hens so my dad would be ridiculous about eggs he would crack all the eggs out onto saucers he'd have like 15 eggs oh, right. and then he, would, he would grade them <laughs> and, and only perfect ones were used for poaching the absolute freshest <laughs> and we're talking about to a detail where you could never buy an egg as good as that in the supermarket oh my really. god and then it, so he'd, he would poach eggs and then he'd have his fried eggs lined up ones that only super frying and then ones that weren't good enough for frying were first scrambling but then only the Really, I mean, they were still very good eggs. Yeah. And then everything else was for cakes. Wow. So like, he was so focused on it and he would yeah. base these eggs individually and like make them perfectly. And I just look back and think, wow, if I'd have gone to that bed and breakfast now as an adult, food-loving adult, I'd have been like, wow, these guys are really making a nice breakfast. Yeah, and making like, a lot of effort as yeah, well. Yeah, they're both perfectionists, my parents. And I think that... um that was difficult as a child because I'm, I'm not a perfectionist. No. <laughs> and being forced to uh, do things in their perfect ways was probably quite a good learning curve. Yeah, because yeah. as a chef, you have to be a bit of a perfectionist, don't you, to in an, your work? To an extent, yeah, to an extent. But perfection's quite boring. Yeah, that is um, true. But yeah, so why they decided to take on the Black Swan, I think, you know, having run that bed and breakfast, they thought they could turn the hand to it. And they had two, two boys who'd not done particularly well at school and they thought right what are we going to do with these two useless lads we've got so I think they, they just set us on it does seem an, a logical next step like you can see what their thought process you, was you can see it but I, I suppose like a lot of people you go into an industry thinking you know what you're doing and realise yeah. you've absolutely no idea Yeah, definitely. It, was, it was a very steep learning curve yeah but sometimes you've just got to take that jump yeah, 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 and it's all so. worked out very well. well I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Around that time was when you got quite ill. And you say yourself there's never a good time to get ill, but actually it did work out kind of to your advantage because you had a lot of time convalescing. And that was where you had like a big breakthrough moment in what you wanted to do, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when I left school to work in the family pub, I just waited on and I washed pots and I had no interest in it whatsoever oh, really? <laughs> not at all I just wanted to have a good time and, and and play cricket that was my real passion but when I got ill I wasn't able to have a good time or play cricket yeah and it, that was a, it was a really hard time I think it defined me really as a person as well because I was a year having sort of surgery but but also I was I was severely underweight. I was like 10 stone and I'm a 15 stone man now yeah. so you know it was I was quite dramatically underweight and um I had a colostomy bag for a year which is a as an eighteen year old yeah it's not guy, ideal no it's it's <laughs> devastating i mean to 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 your self esteem yeah and you know I think young men are incredibly insecure as it is, you know we don't mature as quick as women do, and we have this sort of need to be macho, I think at that age, and to have all that taken away from you was 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 really difficult, yeah, but it got the bit between my teeth. I started reading a lot of cookbooks and watching cookery shows and stuff like that, and any sort of cooking media I could find at all and, and and just thought I was determined to do something. All my friends had gone to university having a great time and I was laid in bed. 
and I had no skills and no qualifications. So I kind of felt incredibly insecure and a little bit angry with the world and had a go at cooking. Yeah, but isn't that so cool how such a low moment, something so good can come out of it? I think that's something that I definitely found researching you and your story is there are a lot of ups and downs, but you somehow always come through it. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but like a little bit stronger. Well, it defines you as a character and as a person. Yeah. yeah. And I think when you have d- low moments, you, well, f- for me, I'm very determined not to go there again. Definitely. So the third desert island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten. That's a, such a tough question, isn't it? I think, I mean, I should say, or I'd have expected to say something I had in some like amazing two or three mission star restaurant, which I have had some amazing, amazing dishes in restaurants. But the, I think the time that I most, I declared at the time, it was the most fun I'd ever had eaten and like oh, the right. most had delicious, was actually something totally, totally humble, which was oxtail. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was the end of last year. It was the first sort of cold year we, day we'd had of the autumn. Me and my girlfriend said, so we put some oxtail in the oven and gone out for the day. And then we were going to go to the pub and meet some friends, but just have like a couple of drinks and come back and have tea. A couple of drinks turned into... A couple of couple drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we came back quite sort of tipsy and starving. And like, we was, so we started picking down this oxtail. It was far too hot. So I was like burning my hands and like eating it as I went and like sucking on the bones a bit and like, you know, all that. And we made, Charlotte makes the most amazing dumplings. Ooh. So we made oxtail and dumplings. And I made like the naughtiest, richest mashed potato you've ever eaten in your life. And we sat down and I was just eating away through it. And you know, when you've, you've had a few drinks, you're ravenous. Yeah. You can like inhale it. And it was like too hot to eat, but we're both so hungry. We're planning for it. And I turned around and said, I literally think this is the best thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Oh my God. Like most of us are struggling with like a gross kebab. You're tucking into the most delicious meal ever. You've got you to prepare. you got to get the oxtail in before you go out. <laughs> That's true. Note to self. So at that point, it was 2008. We were deep into the recession and the business was still a pub at that point. And you all made the decision to transform it into what you describe as a destination restaurant. That's obviously incredibly exciting, but it's a really big decision. How do you even go about trying to make that happen? It was a funny one. It actually came from a book. I was reading Marco Pierre White's um, autobiography. Yeah. And he was talking about how he'd set up Harvey's, his restaurant in Wandsworth Common in the late 80s when there was also a recession going on and how someone had given him the advice that in a recession, the, the bottom of the market might survive. The top of the market will survive, but everything in the middle probably won't. Um, so the advice he was given was put your prices up rather than down. It's interesting, and, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Cause it's, it's a very bold tactic, mm. but we'd already tried putting our prices down Yeah, <laughs> and every pub was doing a two for one deal or an early bird or something. Now, Oldstead's in the middle of nowhere nobody's going to travel into the middle of nowhere for a two-for-one pub dinner. They're not going to. So we had to. We had no other option to, to go the other way. But that was the catalyst moment. I was like, guys, I think we should try and make it the best we can make it. And we were like, okay, let's go for it. I mean, we don't know how to do it, but we'll yeah. have a go. <laughs> God, that must have, yeah, that's such mm. an exciting moment. And then just a few years later, the Black Swan was awarded a Michelin star. And then in 2013, you stepped into the role of head chef and retained your Michelin star. I mean, what was what was that moment like, like getting the first star? The first time we got a star, I mean, it was a chef called Adam Jackson who was, who was the head chef at the time. That was, I was it's quite a humbling moment, actually, because we won a Michelin star, which we were really happy about. Yeah. But at the time, we were still very much a pub. And 
we won a mission site, it got leaks. It was about lunchtime. I think we set up for lunch and we found out we're all hugging each other. And then one of the waiters just came in and she went, okay, check on guys. We've got two sandwiches, <laughs> both cheese, one on brown, one on white. No butter on one of those. Oh my God. Uh, nothing brings you back down to earth like making a sandwich that doesn't have butter on it. And I think that really showed oh my goodness. where we were at as, you know, we were still very much a fledgling business. Yeah, that's hilarious. And um, my only experience of Michelin judges is from the film with Bradley Cooper. <laughs> I'm not sure but... it's particularly accurate. <laughs> is there any way? Of See, Bradley possibly... Cooper, though, we could bring him back. He could play me. Oh, oh, okay. I like yeah. Bradley Cooper, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, those are two very good options for yeah. Hardy and Especially, Bradley Cooper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think Bradley okay. Cooper is beautiful. I mean, he is yeah, beautiful. who doesn't think? That. yeah <laughs> and he's in i think he's great yeah so yeah bradley cooper put him down is is there any way of sussing out when the judges are coming and who they are um i guess there is because there's only so many of them and you yeah. do recognize them or oh i see okay um, they're not like completely incognito well they do try to be but every now and again they will introduce themselves to you and have a chat oh right okay um, that's nice I mean, they don't it is nice. I mean, they're very pleasant people, but they, you ask them questions and they don't generally give you the answers. Yeah. Especially when you couldn't say to them, Did you like it? Did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're not going to give you the answer. <laughs> um, but they will give you advice on things they've noticed. And, but more than anything, they're asking you questions to find out if you're changing anything because they're publishing a book and they want it to be correct. Yeah. So if you're planning on closing down, shutting all your lunch times, they want to know because they want their guide to be right. So that's yeah. the main reason why they introduce yourself. So yes, you do have an idea, but. I'm, I'm way over the idea of cooking for inspectors. Like yeah. uh, the way I look at it, every single dish you send out should be perfect, and it doesn't really matter who it is. Well, yeah, and, and we don't have anything anything different for an yeah. inspector. To I guess else. that's the idea of them being under the radar. Is mm. that whole mm. premise is that yeah, you're actually seeing what it's like on a day to day, and you yeah. treat all of and, your and customers. so they should do. Yeah. You know, definitely, Tommy. The fourth desert island dish. What is your favorite sandwich? My favorite sandwich. So I have sort of two guilty pleasures. One yeah. of them is there's a shop at the um, King's Cross train station that does these like salt beef sandwiches with like the big p- pickles and gherkins in. Right, okay. And, and I really like that. But on a Saturday, because obviously I work on a Saturday as a chef, but my girlfriend doesn't work. She always makes me a sandwich. To um, take to work? Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And it only, but on a Saturday. And it's, but she makes the most great sandwich. Cause, What's like, in it? Because if I was going to make it, I'd probably be rushing about and I wouldn't bother putting all the ingredients in. So so she, what she does, we, we have a bit of salami in and then a really naughty cheese. It's either like brie or cambozola, something really soft. Um, and then push some ham. Yeah. And then loads of cornichons. Ooh, Like thinly yes. sliced. And then a really generous amount of mustard. Like to a point where, and she surprises me, sometimes it's English, sometimes it's Dijon. <laughs> but... To a point where, like, some, when she's using this mushroom, sometimes the point where it makes my nose hurt oh. a little bit, but in a really good way. Yeah. And, like, they're phenomenal. Because I sometimes see the boys and they've got sandwiches made by their girlfriends. And I'm like, what have you got? You, you've got cheese and pickle, right? I've got, like, cornichons in mine. And they've all been thinly sliced individually. That's so she, sweet. She that, makes the best sandwiches. That's so sweet that you all go to work with your packed lunches. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think also you can kind of, like, trade off. You tell your girlfriend that, Someone else's girlfriend makes them a yeah. sandwich. Well, and kind of- I actually fell for that one because my fiance is an opera singer and he was like, everyone else's girlfriends make some supper in the evening, like to take to work. I was like, do they? <laughs> like sort of making him all these meals, but I don't think they actually did. <laughs> but it, that sounds like the kind of sandwich that would kind of, that would bore into me. I'd be thinking about it the whole morning. Do you find yourself having bre- like lunch um, at yeah, nine? Yeah, I eat it about half yeah. time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So 
there you were, age 24, you had a Michelin star, but you say that you felt like a fraud. Tell us about that. Yeah, so so um, so Adam had left the restaurant and it was about sort of three, four months before the Michelin guy came out. And it was really imperative for us that we kept this Michelin star because we, we didn't have a good business. It wasn't very busy, but probably the small amount of business we did have was because of this Michelin star. So that was a really high pressure time. I decided I didn't want to cook any of the dishes that he did. So I wanted to do everything new. So basically Phil Howard just brought out the square cookbook and I stole quite a few recipes from his cookbook and several other people's cookbooks yeah. and, and made a really quite nice menu of good recipes. And it was nice for them for sort of four months. I, I worked every single day, so seven days a week and we didn't have many staff. So I work all hours and it, it was really difficult. But then when the guy came out, we'd want to start. That's that was amazing. Perfect. It was amazing. It was, it was great. And that's when I first met a journalist. I'd never spoke to a journalist before because, well, I hadn't done anything of any newsworthy, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I was talking to this journalist and that's what she said, and it's quite a defining moment, really. She said, you've reached the pinnacle of your career and you're only 24 oh, years God. old. And I was like, oh my God. In my head, I was thinking, I'm not even very good at cooking. Like, I can't cook. I can only cook the four or five things that we cook here. I can't cook anything else. I've just just cook them things like and i was thinking this is and i was getting so much praise and like this thing is so young he's got a mission star and i just felt embarrassed i thought i've really got to do something about this because this is not cool like i am such a fraud so i um decided really i needed more identity and how could i find this sort of inspiration i looked at sort of all the top chefs and all of them are influenced by their experiences. And they probably aren't 24 either. At the time, they're probably 45 or something. Yeah. But it's, it's their, the place, the other chefs they've worked for, where they've trained, where they've traveled, or the journey they've been on since becoming a head chef influences what they do. And I'm like, well, I never even left home. I don't have any experiences. I don't, what am I going to do? So then that's the, the, the idea was started coming back to childhood memories and things. Growing up on the farm, I realized, going back to the very first thing we talked about, I realized that actually I've been surrounded by food my whole life and, um, you know, amazing sort of culinary background that I had and never realized. Yeah. And I started, we started growing. So we started growing produce, growing on five, six acres of land that, on the farm, which was brilliant because my dad threw himself into that. And that was great. And, and foraging, which I know has become really sort of fashionable, but if you're in the middle of nowhere, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's amazing because so many people would have been in that position and they kind of just would have sighed a big sigh of relief and then chanted along with their Michelin star. I think that's so impressive to sort of acknowledge that you could do more. And I don't know, I just think that's very interesting. Yeah, you know, it is. But I found at all points in my career so far when something we achieved something really good, I never felt that great about it. I've always sort of thought, well, what's the next thing we can do? I've always... I've always wondered, like, because some people say, oh, it's the most amazing moment in my life. And I've, I've never really had this feeling of euphoria. I don't know whether there's just something wrong with me yeah. or not. <laughs> but, but, but that's how I've always kind of felt. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely wouldn't want to go, right, it's done now. I'm done. Yeah. I really wanted to make something my and own. I think it's interesting as well, because when that journalist said that, she meant it as such a good thing. And actually to you, you were like, whoa, hang on a second. Like, I, this isn't the end. This isn't, I haven't reached my peak, essentially, is what happened, isn't it? I think that's, yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, and of course you don't want to reach your peak. No. <laughs> but also I was, it brought out my insecurities as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that having a Michelin star and having this amazing food doesn't necessarily mean that business is booming. Like it, it brings certain amount of people through the door, but it's still hard, isn't it? 
Yeah, um, restaurants are a hard business to work in. The margins are very, very small. Yeah. Um, and the costs are very expensive. So this is a hard business to run anyway. And especially when I, I start saying, uh, I want to grow everything myself. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, I close lunch times at the restaurant so we could, we could focus on growing our own produce. And so I was making it very niche, which none of these are commercial business decisions, but they're decisions to try and forge something special and something that I could be proud of. Definitely. Um, but no, you, you need your restaurant to be really busy if, if you want to make money. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere, it's hard to get, a busy restaurant and you need you need PR yeah and when you were making all of these decisions which in hindsight they were really brave were your parents sort of just going along with it or was everyone secretly freaking out no, they're, they're brilliant. the way our sort of family works is four of us I have too many ideas and okay. some of them aren't great and, yeah. <laughs> and they shoot me down which is really good and my brother is much more cautious so so it works quite well I'll have like I'll be like, one do this, one do that. And he'll probably like bring it back the other way and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. Okay. My dad's similar to me. Like he's, he's a very creative man and he loves to move things forward. And then my mum is more similar to my brother. So it kind of, it kind of mediates out. And we, whilst we are making like big decisions, usually they've got a bit of reason behind them because of the other family members. Yeah. God, that sounds like a dream team. When it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fifth desert island dish is the dish you eat the most often. Mm, that's an interesting one. I mean, I eat quite a lot of omelettes. Oh, do you? Well, they're just very easy, aren't yeah. they? And I find I can just whack three eggs in a pan, make an omelet with a little bit of cheese in and eat it and then go. Yeah. So I tend to eat an awful lot of omelets all the time. But my, I have a bit of a thing, which is like ice cream. Oh, yeah? Because oh, I just love ice cream. It's just, I don't know what it is. It's like the perfect marriage between something really rich and fatty and sweet. Yeah. And they just I just I just gorge on it. I can't stop. I like I feel like something comes over me. Like you know, the, the pint pots of Ben and Jerry's. It's dangerous. I just eat a whole one. I can't if it's open, it's it's gone. Yeah. And I can't stop myself. It's it's a weakness. I don't think you'll be alone in that, Tommy. So going on Great British menu, did you feel at that stage, you know, you you had nothing to lose in a way and everything to gain? To an extent. We we needed um people to know about us because we, yeah. we were doing some really interesting food and we were working really hard, but nobody really knew about it. Mm. And and so it needed to be done. But equally, I don't think you ever feel like you have nothing to lose no. when you go on TV because you worry constantly about how you're going to be portrayed and, and whether you're going to ruin it. It is a risk. You know, if yeah. you go on TV and you muck it up, people go, oh, that chef, he's, he's not very good. Yeah, he's got a Michelin star and he can't boil an egg. But if you, actually, to be fair, I probably can't. Oh. Actually, uh, what is? I always get flummoxed by that at breakfast time when people oh. are like, "I want a soft boiled egg." And you're like, well, "How long does that actually take?" Um, I digress. Um, but yeah, you are putting a risk out there. But of course, the reward for being successful is massive. So definitely, when I went on, I really left no stone unturned with my preparation. I was really going in for it, and I was like psyched up. I was like, no one was going to stop me because I knew what difference it could make to our business. Definitely. And you ended up winning two years in a row, which is mm. just amazing. And like you say, it sort of turned everything around. The restaurant is fully booked. And like I said in the introduction, last year, TripAdvisor awarded the Black Swan, the best fine dining restaurant in the whole world, voted for by the people. I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, it really is incredible. Yeah. I, I still don't really know what to make of that. Like, I didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. When we, because we found out and there was an embargo and then it was released. And then it got released and it clearly turned out it was a massive deal. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't just, people were contacting us from around the world saying, I just, we were just on the news in like my country. We were 
like headline news around the world. And I think the reason why that became such a big story was because if we were a very expensive fine dining restaurant in the middle of New York, no one would abide an eyelid because mm. it's supposed to win the best restaurant in the country. But because we're a small, like former pub really in the middle of nowhere in North Yorkshire, family run business, people were like, well, wait a minute. Well, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. And it came, I think it became from a media point of view, the perfect storm of, yeah. of, of um, uh, attributes to make a great story. But stripping it back though, I thought this is actually one of the best things we've, that we've achieved because we've got the highest rating on TripAdvisor. That's people who've been to our restaurant, genuine customers, not critics or not anybody from the media. It's something to do with people who've actually been to our restaurant and they've all loved it. And we open seven days a week. So it's a huge team effort. And like all, pretty much everybody who comes to the restaurant last year loved it. All those, those who went on TripAdvisor did. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, thought, well, I thought that's actually amongst all accolades, that's probably as, as good as anything. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's the biggest understatement I've ever heard. It's absolutely incredible. Amazing. The sixth desert island dish is your go-to dinner party dish. It's quite an interesting one. I don't really have dinner parties. Well, no, I was going to say, um, you don't have time. Well, the thing is with being a chef, you get invited around someone's house, they fuss over you and they're like, oh, is it all right? Is it all right? And you're like, yeah, it's great. I don't care. Can we just have a normal conversation? Yeah. <laughs> and then I don't, we don't cook for many people because we don't have much time off, but yeah. also because, yeah, we, we tend to go out a lot. Yeah. Like we enjoy, we always stay in and cook together. This is like our thing that we do, me and Charlotte, we, we always cook together it's lovely. But then if we're going to go out, we go out with other people. It's nice to get out. Um, but one thing, we, we've recently got this little portable pizza oven. So Ooh. we started doing a bit of that. So uh, that's quite a fun project. Yeah, you can make You make the dough and you make all the sauces, get all these set up ready and you've got to light the oven. It takes quite a long time and you have a few beers. So I think that's going to be, especially when the weather gets a bit better, because we did it the other day and we're having to hop in and out of the house and it's freezing. Amongst but, the snow. But this summer, exactly. <laughs> I think this summer, rather than like having a barbecue, I think we're going to go pizzas. Yeah, I love the sound of that. So the book, Roots, it's just wonderful. And like you've said, it's, it's about the recipes, but it's also about your philosophy, which is really unique. So instead of the three, the four seasons that we all think of, you work with the idea of three. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was born out of frustration. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be honest, you get to this time of year, so we're in, um, you know, March now and then even April, May. And I, and I would go out to the people's restaurants and they've got like really nice peas and beans and asparagus and whatever it might be, which it all comes from the, from the continent really. Yeah. And it was spring vegetables. But when I started growing, I realized there isn't really any such thing as spring vegetables. Like maybe by middle of May up in Yorkshire, I might have a few radishes. That's about it. <laughs> so in May... It can be 25 degrees outside, beautiful, sunny, hot day. Everyone's driving around with the convertibles, the roof down. Everyone's in shorts and t-shirt. We haven't got any produce. Yeah. <laughs> We're still using all the winter produce. And people come in for a meal and they'd be like, oh, I don't really want any like more Jerusalem artichokes, thanks. I quite fancy something fresh. And you're like, well, it doesn't work like that. You know, you need, once the weather gets warm, that's when everything starts growing. And you yeah. need these sort of, these months of March, April, May, to grow the produce. So that's why they call it the hunger gap and why I've titled that part of the year hunger gap. Yeah. Is that, you came up with that or is that? And that is, uh, the hunger gap is a, a term used okay. by, by, by people for, to describe the time of year when everything's growing and nothing's actually ready yeah. to eat. Because I, I did, I approached it and I thought, I can't write a cookbook, spring, summer, autumn, winter. 
when I actually don't have anything in spring. Yeah. So it's I, not how you actually cook. No, exactly. And I thought, well, how do I cook? And I thought, well, there's only really three seasons. There's the hunger gap, which is brilliant from a creative point of view because it makes you work hard on making brilliant dishes of what you've got. But by the time you get to the end of it, like now, you're like, just just come on. Yeah. <laughs> I want a bit of summer. <laughs> time of abundance is basically summertime. Yeah. And that is when I can go out and I can go to the garden and I can just cook from it. There's a bounty of produce. I can cook whatever I want. And then the last few months of the year are called the preserving season. And then the last few months of the year are brilliant because before you've had like, the real depths of winter, you've got all the winter vegetables. There's almost as much of a bounty as there is in the middle of summer. But also in that time, for our restaurant, we've got to preserve a lot of produce in order to get us through the hunger gap. Yeah, so you're thinking ahead to the next season, making sure that you're going to last and everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that can be in lots of different ways. And from freezing things, which sounds very straightforward, but a very effective way of preserving, yeah. or pickling, or fermenting, drying, or, or old-fashioned clamping, which means just burying your root vegetables in, in soil and keeping them through the winter. So there's loads of ways. And interestingly, none of them are newfangled. No. All of them are old-fashioned techniques that have gone out the window because we don't have the necessity for them. Yeah, yeah. I like it. It seems like a very old-school approach, and there's something very comforting mm. about that. Yeah, it's just a really unique way of of looking at cooking, and it makes so much sense. So, no, I think I got a tweet the other day, a guy saying, "Your cookbook sounds great, Tommy, but if I don't have a fermenter, what oh. am I supposed to do?" <laughs> and I was like, "What's a fermenter? Yeah, what is a fermenter? There's no such thing as a fermenter." <laughs> and I, as I think, is that these the techniques that maybe he's referring to are actually the simplest things. Yeah, like I've done a section on fermentation. I want to really scale it, but I know it's a very fashionable thing and also a chefy thing and people think it's a bit out of the way. It's a very simple process. Yeah. Most of the food that we eat every day is fermented in some way. For anyone who doesn't know, what is fermenting? Well, fermented food, I mean, beer is fermented, yeah. cheese is fermented, soya sauce, Worcester sauce, most things, you know, and it, it's, a, it's a way of preserving really. Yeah. Um, and how, how does it differ to pickling? Well, to when it comes to fermentation, the basically the chemical reaction means that you create alcohol and the alcohol dies off and then you're left with a, a product which is that you can keep. Yeah. So when it comes to like fermenting vegetables, so if you were going to pickle a vegetable, you would put the vegetable in the pickling liquor and put it in a jar and it's done. Yeah. With, with fermentation, you would put your vegetables in a jar of salt water, a little bit, 2% salt water maybe, put it in the jar and leave it. And then after a week, it would start to bubble and you'd have to let the gas off it. And then after three or four weeks, you would stop bubbling and there's no more gas coming off it. And then it's done. It's Amazing. Kept and it's ready to go. And so, so things like that is like, it's really easy. But then you start tasting these fermented products and you think, God, they've got such depth of flavor. It's not like the sourness you get from pickling. So you use vinegar and yeah. that's just one sort of very distinct type of acid. You get this sourness, which is a much more mouth, it fills your mouth and it's delicious. And I, I love those flavors. So I thought it was really important to do a section in the book about it, but also in a way of like literally get some turnips, put them in a jar, do this process, and then you've got this really cool thing. Yeah, no, it's definitely much simpler than it sounds in the book. The book is amazing and everyone should buy it. Thank you. The, <laughs> the seventh desert island dish is the final one of the day and it's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Oh my God, I've been reading it. Well, what am I going to eat on the desert island though? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, I guess a lot of fish. A lot of fish. Well, if you nice. can catch them, that would be really nice. A lot of fish. Um, the dish I would eat. Well, I probably have to have some meat then. So, yeah. so, uh, so. By the way, on this desert island, yeah. I'm going to catch whole 
and there's going to be some really nice flatfish. I don't know what they are because they're exotic and I only really cooked with cold water fish. Yeah. They're going to be these beautiful exotic fish and I'm going to cook them on like open fires every day and they're going to be phenomenal. Well, you're actually. going to have a queue of people lining up to come to the desert island. <laughs> well, that would be great because I'm rubbish without people. So like if there was a bit of company, that'd be brilliant. So that we've basically made a business plan and we've got a target audience yeah. for the desert island. Yeah. So before we went, we'd have to have some meat then, I suppose. So I just got to have like a really good steak, like a rib of beef, maybe. And a really naughty like hollandaise sauce but maybe even like with blue cheese in it or something yeah so it's like really rich and just really heavily roasted outside of it and just melting fat and yeah i'd have i'd have if that's the last piece of meat i'm going to eat because there's no animals on this desert island i'm gonna have a big roasted ribeye you're gonna have the whole rib yeah all of it actually (laughs) yeah all of it yeah and are you gonna have a pudding yes am i gonna have lemon tart oh right I love lemon tarts great choice all forms really I mean you get lemon tarts and it's like a bit of curd in a pastry case quite like that but also you get like a lemon tart which has been baked in the oven and it's just set I love that you get like jam tarts and I love them so like I just absolutely adore lemon tarts okay. and if we ever make them like at home I literally eat like half of one of those big tarts yeah it's dangerous to make them at home you're allowed to take with you one luxury item it isn't human though not a human that can be an animal i can't take sharks so i'd have to take my dog yeah we've had a lot of pets i'll take penelope with me and then i can i can throw sticks into the sea and she can bring them back i love that she's called penelope okay we'll send you and penelope off to the island thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes thank you very much for having me yep you guys all heard it here first when the film rights get sorted i think i'll be in line for some sort of finder's fee I love that Tommy turned the desert island into a business idea. Very original. Thank you so much for listening. Come and find me on Instagram at madebymargie. And I will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.